This is the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, the Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Greetings out there in Michigan Radio Land and especially all you political junkies. You know, observers uh, during the first four months of calendar year 2019 have been saying it's been rather slow and soporific in Lansing and the state capitol. Not much going on. Well, all that changed this week. The sun, the sky, and the moon fell on the Capitol, uh, all sorts of political stuff going on of major import um, at the national level with obvious uh, impact on the state of Michigan. Joe Biden, former vice president, announced he was, in fact, going to run for president. And uh, initial national polls show that he leads incumbent President Donald Trump 42 to 34 percent with about, yeah. 25%, a quarter of the electorate undecided. I would expect that that margin is about the same in Michigan, maybe a little bit more of an advantage for Biden, perhaps at this time. But look, we got a long way to go and everything could change. But look, the big development this week was the incredible bombshell dropped by a three judge federal panel uh, in Detroit saying that. The maps for the Michigan congressional delegation and the state Senate and the state House of Representatives have been unconstitutionally gerrymandered ever since 2011, even though we've had four elections since then in these districts that were drawn up at that time in 2011. They are, in fact, unconstitutional. They are gerrymandered in favor of the Republicans. A Republican legislature drew them up. They were signed into law by a Republican governor, Rick Snyder. And even more important, the three-judge federal panel said there must be special elections in 2020, next year, to rectify this, not just in the state house with redrawn maps in a bunch of districts and in the U.S. House delegation with redrawn maps, but for the state Senate. And the state Senate was elected, they thought, to four-year terms in 2018. But the court is saying, no, you've got to run in new districts redrawn next year. And uh, you've got to come up with new maps by August 1st of this year. And if you don't come up with new maps, we, the three-judge panel, will either redraw them ourselves or we will appoint a special master to redraw them. Now, the Republicans have cried foul. They've said this is a terrible decision. They're going to appeal it directly to the U.S. Supreme Court. And here's where it really gets interesting. The U.S. Supreme Court, and I've mentioned this on this program before, have two important cases before them involving the states of Maryland and North Carolina. And they are expected, this is the U.S. Supreme Court, to rule on those 
potential gerrymandered districts in those two states in June. That's two months from now. And in the process of making such a ruling, the U.S. Supreme Court could say, you know what, Uh, this is really not the federal government's business. Uh, The federal judiciary should not be involved in telling states how they should draw their lines. For what it's worth, no U.S. Supreme Court in the entire history of the United States has ever ruled that a particular apportionment plan for a legislative body, whether it's congressional or state legislative, has ever been gerrymandered and must be redrawn. Will they do that for the first time in June uh, in the cases of North Carolina and Maryland with an impact on Michigan? We don't know. But uh, the U.S. Supreme Court could decide this is not our business and uh, throw the three-judge federal panel decision here in Michigan out. And so everybody is waiting to see what might happen next. Now, there were some other things that happened this week. Uh, The Senate Majority Leader Mike Shirky of Jackson County implied on a radio show that impeachment of Attorney General Dana Nessel is not out of the question. The legislature might well consider that because the Republican majority in the legislature does not believe that Dana Nessel is doing her job properly in refusing to uphold state law that was enacted several years ago in a number of instances. So we'll see whether that happens or not. There's much more to that story. There was also some development on the budget this week presented by Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Um, The budget that the Republican majority legislature is moving does not have any new revenue for fix the damn roads. Uh, It does have a little extra money by moving up the timetable on money that's already been appropriated to fix the damn roads uh, by a year so that maybe 350 uh, million more might be available in the next fiscal year to fix the damn roads. Uh, than is currently thought to be in the pipeline, but uh, that is way less than the $2.5 billion a year extra for 10 years that Governor Whitmer says is necessary. Also, uh, the budget that's moving through the legislature uh, cuts the increase to higher education that Governor Whitmer recommended from a 3% increase down to a 1.5% increase. Uh, There are also some developments on uh, K-12 education. The budget moving through would appropriate $131 million less in the foundation grant than Governor Whitmer is recommending for fiscal year 2020. Uh, the Carroll Psychiatric Center in the Thumb, which Governor Whitmer says she wants to close, is really being stopped almost by the legislature in their appropriations process by uh, putting language in that says any money spent on psychiatric care at the Carroll uh, facility has got to stay within a six-mile radius of Carroll. 
Uh, so we'll see what develops there. Also, there were finance reports this week uh, by the House and Senate Republican and Democratic caucuses on how much money they've raised uh, for their campaigns next year, whether they're going to be Senate campaigns or not. They're certainly going to be state House campaigns in any event. All 110 House seats will be up. Uh, the House uh, Republicans uh, set a new record for a quarter with 1.136 million raised. Uh, the Republicans in the Senate raised almost that much, 1.115 million. Over in uh, the Democratic side, uh, the Democrats raised $658,776 for the House. Senate Democrats raised $285,996, much less than the Republicans. But the House Democrats pointed out, you know what? We raised our money, our $658 plus thousand, from over 400 contributors, whereas the House Republicans raised theirs from barely more than a dozen contributors. Uh, and so the Democrats in the House are saying, you know, we're the party of uh, the man and woman in the street. We're going to come back in a minute with a guest, uh, and this could be exciting. It has nothing to do with Michigan directly, uh, but there are going to be some ripple effects. There are some ripple effects coming up from the southern border. We hope to speak with Pulitzer Prize winner Sonia Nazario from her home in California. Back in a minute. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we've got a guest that uh, I haven't done this before. Honestly, have somebody on for almost half an hour. Um, She's generously agreed to do this. She is Sonia Nazario. She is a Pulitzer Prize winner for her best-selling book, Enrique's Journey, which is the story of a Honduran boy's struggle to find his mother in the United States. It was published as a series in the Los Angeles Times. It won a Pulitzer Prize in 2003, published as a book by Random House. Uh, Sonia Nazario has also won the George Polk Award for International Reporting. She's won the Robert F. Kennedy Journalism Award. And she's won an award for overall excellence from the National Association of Hispanic Journalists. She began her career at the Wall Street Journal, where she was the youngest female reporter ever hired by the newspaper. She later segued to the Los Angeles Times, where she has been a journalist for more than two decades. She also writes opinion pieces for the New York Times. She's become a favorite among educators for her coverage of social justice issues such as hunger and drug addiction, as well as immigration. The reason we're having Sonia Nazario on the show, beside what I just recited, is she was the speaker at the Ballinger Eminent Persons Lecture Series at Mott Community College in Flint uh, just this past week. And uh, this series has run for 65 years. It's included national and international leaders, uh, such as uh, scientist Werner Van 
Von Braun and Jared Diamond, journalist Alistair Cook, Peter Jennings, writers Alex Haley, William F. Buckley, musicians Harry Belafani and Patti Smith, film director Spike Lee, actor Tony Shalhoub, entrepreneur Damon John, and political leaders Lech Valenza and Sir Harold Wilson. And now this year, Sonia Nazario. Sonia Nazario, welcome to The Political Insider. Happy to be here. Thank you. Well, let me just start out and ask you this. Uh, what is the situation down on the border and in the whole uh, immigration entry crisis that's been ongoing, as we all know, for more than two decades. Uh, what is your reading on it now, and uh, what needs to be done to fix it or make it better, if that is possible? Well, I think that's a great beginning. To understand the solution, you have to understand the problem. Uh, 10, 20 years ago, the majority of people at our southern border uh, were single Mexican men, coming to the U.S. for a better life. They were so-called economic migrants. But what we've seen in the last uh, decade or so is a huge uptick in violence in three Central American countries, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras. And what we see now are people who are less coming here for a better life than fleeing this violence and trying to save their lives. And so a majority of the people now on our southern border are families. Um, if you, and if you look at the 268,000 who have been apprehended at the southern border in the first five months of the fiscal year, half of them are families with children. And so it, there's a radical change in who is arriving at our southern border, um, not people largely coming for a better life or jobs, but people who someone is trying to kill them back home. And this is because of the growth in uh, gangs and nar narcotic cartels in these countries that have really taken over these countries. These countries are controlled by criminals, which is what I reported again and again, but uh, certainly in a piece a couple of weeks ago in the New York Times, looking at why so many women are fleeing these countries and the brutality with which these women are being killed. So I think you have to understand who's coming. The, the Trump policy has been deterrent. If you make things nasty enough for migrants when they arrive at our southern border, they won't come. But the reality is that that may, work, that may work for someone looking for a better life. But if someone's trying to kill you back home and they say, we're going to kill you in 24 hours if you don't pay a war tax or if your child doesn't join the gang, they're not thinking about what they're going to face at the U.S.-Mexico border. They're focused on getting out of Dodge and staying alive. So we've been revoltingly inhumane towards migrants. We have separate, we have torn children from the arms of their mothers and not tracked where those children went. I mean, we couldn't be, uh, I don't think, more inhumane than we were last summer, and people are coming in greater and greater numbers. So we need a solution that actually works, not what we keep trying and have kept trying for the last uh, three decades. I argue that we have tried border enforcement, guest worker programs, and legalization programs pushed by politicians both on the left and the right, and these have not worked to permanently stem the flow, and so we need different solutions that I propose in my New York Times piece. Okay, we'll get to that in a, in a minute, but let, let me just ask you this question. Why in these three countries, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, which have existed for two to three centuries, has things gotten so bad? and so violent and so corrupt 
uh, just in the past half century, certainly in the last 20 or 30 years, why has things gotten so much worse that is pushing these people el norte? Uh, so, yeah, so I'd say that, that primarily two things. In the mid-90s, the U.S. passed law, a law that said that if you were a permanent resident and you committed certain crimes, you were still deportable. And so in 1996, when we passed that law, we started deporting criminal, uh, criminal permanent residents. And we have deported about 300,000 criminals to Central America since the mid-90s. And certainly Central America had gangs um, in the, before then, but this really fueled a lot of the gang violence where these uh, gangsters who were raised in the United States and deported back. Um, and that really led to an immense growth in, in, in two gangs that started in Los Angeles, where I live, the MS-13 gang and the 18th Street gangs. These are the dominant gangs in Central America. And I think more recently, it's that the U.S. spent about $8 billion in the last decade or so to try to disrupt the flow of cocaine that originates in Latin America, largely in Colombia. And you had these drug flights that would come north from Colombia through the Caribbean before onto the United States to bring drugs to us. We're the largest consumer, the U.S., of illegal drugs on Earth. Uh, you know, Houston, we've got a problem. And so what did the narcos do in response to that pressure, the spending of that $8 billion to disrupt that flow? They simply turned left. Instead of going on to the Caribbean, they turned left their drug flights, and they started landing four out of five of those flights in Honduras, a country that had been destabilized after 2009, after a coup. And so there really wasn't government presence in a lot of parts, and so they started landing these flights in Honduras. And these narco cartels uh, really started trying to recruit gangsters to work for them, and the gangsters started forcibly recruiting children um, to work for them to control this turf to move these drugs north to us, to the United States. So I would say those two factors are what most stoked this uh, violence. And, uh, you know, Honduras became uh, the number, uh, the most homicidal country in the world of countries not at war. Uh, just the level of violence that I saw, uh, I, I returned in 2014. That was the first year that we saw kind of a surge of uh, children coming alone from uh, Honduras and trying to figure out what's going on. And I saw... You know, children who were beheaded, who were uh, kidnapped, who were skinned alive by the... Okay, we're going to have to take a break here, but we'll pick up on that in just a minute when we come back. Thank you, Sonia Nazario. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back with Sonia Nazario, Pulitzer Prize winning author of Enrique's Journey. Um, I I just want to have you pick up on what you were talking about in our last segment. And that is um, what I I think is being described. Maybe I've got it wrong as catch and release. You're saying uh, that should be done with ankle monitors and so forth. I'm just wondering, uh, Attorney General William Barr has said, as I understand it, uh, the policy that's been in effect the last 14 years he thinks should be ended, which is to say that if 
somebody enters this country illegally and then is caught, they claim asylum at that point. And he is saying, well, if that's the case and they haven't tried to enter legally, they've entered illegally and then claim asylum without having done so previously, they should be denied bond. Now, what about that? What am I not getting about all this? Well, um, after World War II, we uh, signed international treaties and we incorporated those agreements into our very immigration laws that if you uh, arrive at our border and uh, say that you fear being returned to your country, uh, you go to an asylum officer and have a credible fear interview. And uh, so, so, and if, if you pass that interview, then you are entitled to go before an immigration judge and make your case that you um, you you deserve asylum in this country. Uh, those are our laws, and what the attorney general and the president are trying to do is, uh, quite honestly, uh, skirt our laws. They have said that if you uh, pres- if you arrive at our southern border, well, we're going to meter. We're going to only allow in twenty or thirty people a day at our ports of entry, and that's caused this huge backup at our southern border with these tent cities of people waiting in places like Tijuana, which is the Right now, the most dangerous city in the world uh, because of fights between narco cartels. So these are people who are asking for safety, and we're saying, okay, but you have to wait for weeks or months on end, park in the most dangerous city in the world. Um, and even if you are able to touch American soil and ask for asylum, uh, we're saying that we're going to send you back to Mexico to wait for your immigration court hearing. Uh, so, well, so let, let me just ask you. So you're saying that these backed up people south of the border, um, they get frustrated. Are, are afraid, and, and, so they're and, saying, well, well, I'm not going to do it the way I've been told to do so it. So they enter illegally. They enter right. illegally and then they get caught and they say, well, I'm seeking asylum. And so Barr and Trump are saying, Sorry, uh, you know, you didn't do it the right way, so we're going to deny you bond and you're not going to get a hearing. Right. Well, the reality is that most of them, even coming in not at ports of entry, coming in so-called in an illegal way, are walking into the United States and looking for a Border Patrol agent to turn themselves in. They don't want to wait weeks in these very dangerous situations on the Mexican side of the border. So they're walking in in these large groups of 100, 200 people. They're not trying to hide. They're looking for a Border Patrol agent and saying, I want to ask for asylum from the United States. But you're saying so that I, the United States is saying... you need to have a discussion in this country. Do we want to provide safety? Are we a country that provides safety to people who are running for their lives. We have 65 million refugees roaming the earth right now, more than at any time since the massive displacement after World War II. And we've cut the number of refugees we take to 30,000 a year, and we'll slow walk that to half that number. That's down from 130,000 a year. And we're trying to obstruct people who are at our southern border and asking uh, for asylum. I'm saying this low is a quarter last year of what it was at the high. And these people have legitimate claims seeking safety from our government. And unless we change our asylum laws, we should respect our asylum laws and treat these people with some compassion. Haven't you also said that, you know, after these people get ankle monitors and they're released uh, to wait adjudication, um, if after one or two years they're denied asylum, they should be sent back. Yes. 
I mean, uh, so so I think what many people believe erroneously is that they don't go to immigration court for their hearing. Nine in ten asylum seekers do go to court for their hearing. What rankles many Americans and rankles me is that we have a legal system to see if you deserve to stay here or not. And if you lose in that legal system, folks blend into the woodwork and stay in the United States unlawfully. And I think that rightfully, rightfully rankles a lot of Americans saying, we gave you a fair shot and you lost, you should leave. And so what ICE says now is they can only target about 4% of the population in the United States unlawfully every year. They use a scattershot approach to kind of generate maximum fear among everyone. I think instead of uh, doing that, they should target people who lose their asylum cases, and that would send a message that if you don't really deserve asylum, you're going to be sent back to your country. And uh, I, I think that, you know, it sends a message that we are a country that, that upholds the rule of law. I've lived in countries that don't have laws, and we, we don't want that. And we can't take in everyone from the world, but I think we should prioritize people running from harm, and we should uh, send ICE after people who do not win their asylum cases and send a message to people down south that if you don't win, we will target you and we will deport you. Have you been able to do any study on what is the track record of these people who finally end up in this country one way or another, whether they did get asylum, whether they didn't get asylum, and they do uh, just fade into the woodwork and disappear into the hinterlands of the United States. Is there any track record showing what is the actual performance of these people as, you can't call them citizens of the United States because they haven't been given citizenship, but inhabitants of the United States, what is the track record? Um, My experience, uh, you know, with migrants, I think the, the track record has largely been tracked in terms of economics and uh, their uh, how many commit crimes and those sorts of things. And the evidence is overwhelmingly positive that these migrants, uh, refugees and asylum seekers contribute way more to the economy than they take away, that people uh, uh, along those lines commit crimes at a much lower rate than people who are born in this country. So... The the, the, the the drumbeat that we hear every day is that these folks are all, you know, murderers, rapists, criminals, some. Uh, and the reality that the studies show and the reality that I see with migrants, uh, and I've tracked them in their home countries and on the journey north, I spent three months riding on top of freight trains through Mexico uh, with migrants. And, uh, and, and here in the United States and communities is that they are folks who are overwhelmingly good people. You know, there are bad people in any group, but overwhelmingly good people who are looking for safety, who are looking for a better life for their children. Is there any way that the United States can beef up their entry points? I mean, to the point where, you know, they can accommodate more of these immigrants seeking asylum. I mean, you're saying that there's this pent up, you know, huge camps on the south side of the U.S.-Mexican border, people waiting to get in. Uh, Can't the United States increase its access? Uh, capability or possibility, whether they accept these people eventually or not? 
Yeah, and I think that, Bill, that's what they should be doing. Uh, on our southern border, instead of throwing resources into, you know, topping our fences with concertina wire, which uh, I'm not sure what that accomplished beyond that some Mexicans are stealing the concertina wire to put around their houses for security. Um, I think instead of those kinds of efforts that are not effective, um, we we should have seen what was coming, that, that this growing violence in these countries and uh, the movement of a asylum seekers towards our southern border and building up uh, people, the, the, the ability to process these people. Our facilities uh, along the southern border are meant to deal with single Mexican men from 20, 30 years ago who would quickly be deported back. Uh, but we can't do that with uh, children who come here alone and uh, these families. And so we have to adapt uh, our, our, our facilities and our processes to deal with it. What about uh, the wall? I mean, obviously, that was President Trump's major campaign theme in 2016. What if there was a wall built, like the Great Wall of China, all the way across our southern border? If, <laughs> if that happened, uh, would it work? Well, I think most experts think the walls uh, largely don't work. They can slow someone down, you know, temporarily as they're going over the wall, but... Uh, well, walls can't be built in all parts of the southern border. There are environmental and physical reasons why the wall cannot be built everywhere. And the reality is that half a third of people who come to the U.S. unlawfully uh, come through legal ports of entry. Someone, some official is looking the other way. Uh, 95% of drugs are coming in through legal ports of entry. Two-thirds of those who became unlawful in the United States over the last decade never got near the southern border. They came on an airplane with a visa to the United States and overstayed their visa. And a wall does nothing to address those folks. So what most experts say is you have to beef up our legal ports of entry, where a lot of folks are coming through uh, illegally. And that will do a lot more to stop the flow of illegal drugs people than, you know, building these medieval, you know, fifth century walls. And as I said in okay, my... Okay, we got to we gotta end it there. Boy, I wish we could keep talking. There's so much to talk about. Sonia Nazario, you've been a tremendous guest. Thank you so much for being on The Political Insider. Thank you. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back with Sonia Nazario, Pulitzer Prize winning author and an expert on immigration at the southern border. In other words, Sonia Nazario, you're saying that the United States policy in the 1990s to send these criminals out of the country, 300,000 of them, deport them, backfired. I mean, in the sense that it uh, allowed them to, you know, Established themselves in these three countries, uh, Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala, and actually uh, create a far worse situation in those countries than existed before. Yes, and I think that then the advent of the, you know, what we do with uh, the narco cartels is we squeeze Colombia, we, we, we help kill Pablo Escobar, and then the narcos move to Mexico, and we squeeze Mexico, and the narcos move to uh, you know, Honduras, the neighborhood I was in earlier this year, El Chapo would show up with some regularity to that neighborhood. And now we're squeezing Central America, and those drug flights are returning to the Caribbean uh, where they landed uh, previously, and homicides are going up there. 
Uh, and so, you know, along with solving our, our, our immigration issues in a rational way, uh, which we are not doing now, we need to deal with our, our, our demand for drugs. Until we do that, we're just going to move this violence around uh, to the south of us. We spent a trillion dollars on a failed uh, drug war, um, and it, we've locked up nonviolent drug offenders. And instead, we should do a lot more drug treatment, drug prevention, and God forbid I advocate, you know, maybe even legalize small quantities of everything. Portugal did that, and crime went up in the immediate sense right after they legalized small quantities. But 15 years later, they cut drug use in half. We've spent a trillion, million, trillion dollars on this war on drugs, and we use just as many drugs as we ever did, and we're fomenting all of this violence south of us to try to move these drugs north to us. You mentioned airplane flights, you know, from Colombia with uh, cocaine up into Central America, getting away from their former routes to the Caribbean. I mean, isn't there some way that either the governments in Central America or the United States could crack down on flights or where these planes land? Or is it just impossible? It's just impractical. You can't do that. I think because there there is so much money to be had in drugs. Uh, when you look at the money that flowed into Honduras during the height of these drug flights, it was greater than the entire GDP of the country. Uh, the narcos could buy off uh, judges, politicians, po- uh, police officers. Police officers would stop the freeways and allow the, the flights to land. They would escort drugs to the northern border. They form teams of sicarios who would kill for the narcos. So when you're dealing with so much money and, and it's corrupting influence, um, I, the, the narcos adapt. You know, they move the drugs in submarines or in small boats. Um, they're highly adaptive. When there's this much money to be made, uh, they figure out a way to get the drugs done. Well, one of the things you mentioned in your talk in Flint was Instead of punishing uh, governments in Central America by cutting off U.S. foreign aid or whatever because they're not doing the job of uh, retaining or containing their population, uh, we should actually be doing the opposite. There should be an infusion of U.S. money to combat violence and corruption in Central America. There should be almost like a Marshall Plan to stop drug violence and corruption in Central America, and that would do more than anything to keep these people from even having the motive to flee north in family mobs. I mean, I think when you understand what the problem is, you understand what the solution is, which is addressing the root causes of why people are fleeing just these three uh, countries in Central America that make up the majority of the folks on our southern border now. And I looked in uh, 2015 when uh, Congress recognized this, and they doubled foreign aid to Central America. Of course, this was all cut off about two or three weeks ago uh, by President Trump. But back in 2015, they doubled foreign aid, and I went in 2016 to see if this was working. And I went to the most violent neighborhood in the what had been for four years in a row the murder capital of the world, San Pedro Sula, Honduras. And in this neighborhood, the worst place in the world, we had funded outreach centers where kids could go after school and get away from the gangs. We funded a program that was piloted in Los Angeles where you go into schools, identify the 
kids with the nine risk factors of going into gangs, put them into a year of family counseling, that reduced 77% those children's odds of going into crime or abusing drugs or abusing alcohol. And I think most importantly was the third thing we did in these neighborhoods. We went after the bad guys, the killers. Um, in Honduras, 96% of all homicides get no conviction. So you are virtually assured of getting away with uh, killing someone because if you step forward and serve as a witness in a murder trial, the gang kills you tomorrow and they leave you in the middle of the street with a dead frog on your chest or your tongue cut out on your chest, signifying this is what happens to people who talk. Um, and so we send in a nonprofit that investigates all homicides in these worst neighborhoods and over months convinces witnesses to testify. And they have them testify under a black burqa, like they do in mafia trials in Italy. Uh, and by doing this, uh, they were getting, they started getting convictions on more than half of homicides in these neighborhoods. And this worst place in two years, homicides plummeted 62%. And it cut the number of children fleeing to our country from that neighborhood in half. So what I say is, and, and really this is the first of three things that I think we need to do, um, we need to spend more in these countries, but we actually need a plan. Uh, I think that the U.S. Embassy kind of throws spaghetti at the wall and sees, you know, what works, and there's no clear, coherent plan. We need the best minds in our country to come up with a plan of how to best reduce violence, reduce corruption, reduce extortion, strengthen good, government, uh, good governance in these uh, countries, and I think that this is doable, and it's cost-effective. I can make this argument in the most conservative parts of the U.S., saying we're spending $100 million to do this in Honduras at least a year, at least before President Trump cut this off, versus spending billions of dollars on these migrants once they arrive at our southern border. So uh, it just makes financial sense. It's going to be a lot cheaper to do this than to do the other, even if we, as I advocate, increase the amount we spend. But I think we need to do two other things. Well, um, I think we need to be, while we're tr uh, addressing these root causes and slowly helping to change things in these three countries, I think that we need to be more compassionate towards the relatively few people who are knocking at our door and asking for safety from our government. Uh, after World War II, uh, you know, in World War II, we turned away a ship with 900 Jews aboard, and hundreds of those Jews were murdered in the Holocaust. And we said after the war, never again, our country will not send people back to their death. And we became a leader in the modern-day refugee movement. The flow of people right now to our southern border is about a quarter to a third of what it was at the high. 100,000 people a year ask for asylum from our government. And I believe that we uh, have that amount of compassion in our country, that this is really who we are as a people. We don't turn people back to their death. And so I think instead of locking up these asylum seekers, as we're now doing in horrible prisons where they die from lack of medical care and they have maggots in their food, um, we should release them with an ankle monitor during their immigration court hearings and um, ensure that children, at least, who come to this country alone seeking asylum, have lawyers in immigration court. And the truth is that nine in ten asylum seekers uh, do show up to court. So I, I say be more compassionate on the front end, 
But here's the part that liberals don't like, the third part. Uh, I say that if you don't win your asylum case, we should send ICE out to pick you up and deport you. There have to, we can't take in everyone. We need a country with rule of law, and this is what we should do to people who don't win. Okay, we'll pick up on that when we come back. we got to take another break here with Sonia Nazario, Pulitzer Prize winner. <laughs> 